Hi, this is Tony Kemp, and you're listening to Stroh's Across the Globe. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Stros Across the Globe, the podcast presenting an international view on the Houston Astros, brought to you in association with Apollo Media, all Houston, all original. I'm your host, George Martin, who you may also know as at Astros Fans UK on Twitter. I must first thank you for your patience in waiting for this third instalment as I was working hard to get a particular special guest on the show and from that intro, yes indeed, I was able to get him. It was my absolute pleasure to get the chance to speak with none other than our much-loved former Houston Astros utility infielder slash outfielder, you name it, Tony Kemp. He is of course now plying his trade for our divisional rivals, the Oakland A's, and I spoke with him the morning after a ball game he had played against the Seattle Mariners, with a further game against them to come later that very day, thus I am enormously grateful for his time. So, at last, the abbreviated 2020 Major League Baseball season is underway, and unfortunately, as many of us had long since expected, there have been a mountain of issues to overcome already. The COVID-19 outbreaks amongst the Miami Marlins and St. Louis Cardinals, plus the associated cancellations of series, have sent reverberations around the sport. I cover this in my discussion with Kemp before we take a look back at his time with the Houston Astros and assess what his role was at the club before discussing the day-to-day pressures a player at such a heavily analytical ball club faced with. Following this, we discuss what life is like for a player being sent repeatedly between the majors and the minor leagues before we move on to a discussion of Tony Kemp's plus one effect movement aiming to help educate people across the USA on racial injustice whilst also spreading a positive message. We then discuss whether Major League Baseball is doing enough at this juncture to help support its black players and what else it needs to do. After the Tony Kemp feature, make sure to keep listening for the announcement of which Astros fan has won the prize of the Apollo Be Someone mask design based upon Lance McCullers Jr.'s fantastic Houston-based Spaceman slash World Series tattoo. Best of luck to all who entered with that. One last point before moving on, and that is just to say a quick thank you to all of your positive feedback following episode two. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review Strohs across the globe on whichever podcast platform you are listening. Right, it's time to settle back and listen to an interesting and enjoyable, yet also very thought-provoking talk with the one and only Tony Kemp. I hope you enjoy it. Well, everyone, you're in for a real treat today, as I'm honoured to welcome onto the show none other than current utility infielder for the Oakland A's, but who we as Astros fans more fondly remember as one of our own, the man himself, the much-loved Mr. Tony Kemp. Thank you enormously for taking on the time to join me on Strode Across the Globe. First things first, in the extraordinary landscape of 2020, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Um, honestly, I appreciate it. Sorry for getting back to you. So I finally found a good time, uh, you know, traveling and everything. But, no uh, you know, it's, yeah, you know, 2020, it's a bit of a different scene, you know, for everybody. You know, I just want everybody to be healthy. Um, you know, it's sad to see what our world's going through right now. But I know that change is on the way and just have to keep, uh, you know, being positive. Definitely. I think that's absolutely the right outlook to take. I was going to say just briefly on the subject of this season before we get cracking with the Astros questions regarding your time with us. How are the players generally responding in terms of the updates that are coming through from other clubs of players that are testing positive and teams that are being unable to play, such as the Phillies, such as the, you know, the Cardinals and, and potentially other teams as well? What's the general mood like? Yeah, man, it's it's honestly it's a little bit scary. 
just because, you know, all the protocols that are in place, you know, we are trying to be as safe as we can. You know, with all the positive tests, you know, hopefully we can corral all of them and just like have no, you know, positive tests anymore. It's a little bit scary, but, you know, we're trying to be as protective as we can up there. Hope uh, we have no more, you know, positive tests after, you know, these next rounds and stuff. So, uh, we're just trying to finish the season. Uh, honestly, there's been a lot of distractions. Going into each game, you just you know want to just take care of what uh, the task is at hand and uh, looking what's going on around the world, honestly. So uh, it's been a little bit difficult, but uh, we're trying our best. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I think it goes without saying that fans globally sympathise with the position that a lot of players are in as the news kind of develops. It's a frightening situation for the world at large and even more so for players who are in a, a very tricky spot when it comes to trying to make sure they're looking after themselves, the families, almost, you know how it is, but also having to be wary of whether it's the right thing to play or not. So yeah, I, I completely sympathise with you guys. Moving on to your time with the Astros. I would say that despite leaving the club last year, you very much remain as a much-loved player. And when crowds are allowed back to ballparks, you will doubtlessly receive a rapturous reception on your return to Minute Maid Park. How would you summarize and assess your time with the Astros? Honestly, um, man, just, you know, being an undersized guy, getting drafted out of Vanderbilt, they gave me a shot, Jeff Lunau. Uh, being able to pinch, um, you know, they develop players with the best of them. And you can see why, you know, guys who don't make it with the big leagues with them, like the Ramon Laureano, there's a Rule 5 pitcher that pitched for the Mariners, who was the Astros last night, and it's or with the Mariners last night, who was with the Astros. And time with there was awesome. It's the relationships. It's the people that um, are in the building, like Lance McCullers and Carlos Correa, you know, still being, you know, some of my best friends now. Um and being able to play in the big leagues with them. I have nothing but love for Houston. Um, it was an unbelievable city. Uh, I kind of knew my time was getting toward the end once I was out of options and uh, mm. Carlos Craig needed to come back on the DL and I wasn't playing as much. So I understood this. Um, and once you get into that, uh, you kind of know when you're kind of that. And, you know, that's the business side of it. But uh, the fans were the best. I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for Houston because that's where I started my career. And hopefully one day I'll be able to end up there again and you know, play in front oh, of those yeah. fans. And, yeah, it's it's awesome, man. Um, Oakland's a great spot as well. And, you know, now we're going to be on the other end facing these guys. Yeah, in, definitely. In town. So, yeah, so it's going to be fun. But, um, you know, 16, 17, 18, and parts of 19, uh, you know, parts of those four years with the team was great. And I'm Glad I could impact a couple of people's lives along the way. I think you very much did. I never see, I'm not trying to blow your ego up too much, but I never see a conversation involving you with Astros fans without an outpouring of positivity. And I think that's definitely a legacy of what you left in terms of memories with Astros fans. This might be a tricky question, but do you feel that across your time with the Astros that because for me, I got the impression that they weren't ever clear on what position they wanted you to play in. And I think that they were trying to yeah. mold you perhaps into a Marwin Gonzalez type figure. A bit insulting to say to, to Marwin, a jack of all trades, he was much more than that. He was a fantastic player in multiple yeah. positions. Yeah. But, but to say someone who is able to play anywhere but doesn't lock down that position for a season, it's tricky because you had people like obviously no, Jose Altuve in front of you. But yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Um I knew that I wasn't going to be an everyday guy 
with the Houston Astros. I mean, to be an everyday ball player in the big leagues is a tough task to do. Mm. And especially being on one of the top teams in the league, um, I kind of knew my role and I knew that I was going to be a guy who's going to be filling in or if someone went, got injured, I was going to be filling in, which is a which those roles around the league are important because not everyone is lasting through a 162 game season. It takes more than just 25, 26 guys. So um, once I to, once I got drafted, I played second base all the way up until double A. And then they finally said. I knew that they were serious about me when they wanted me to move back to the outfield because obviously we had Altuve, so mm. and they didn't want to trade me. So my agent was like, "Hey, they don't want to trade you. They actually want to give you. A sh- they want to keep you around because I thought they're going to trade me because obviously I was playing second. That they had Altuve. Yeah. Uh, then once they were like, "Hey, pick up your outfield glove again," I was like, "Okay, they're serious." And so start playing back in the outfield some, and then you know that's when I you know debuted in left field, and um, you know as the time went along. You know, guys like Reddick, George Springer, Michael Brantley, I mean, Colby Rasmus, the list goes on of how many good outfielders that the Astros have had in years yeah. past. And um, not trying to not trying to downgrade who I am as a player, but you have to know who you are. And that's yeah. that's what role you, I knew that I was going to fill. And I just try to play it to the best of my ability. And yeah, it's the right outlook to take. Definitely. What position do you enjoy playing the most? And what do you feel gets the best out of your ability? Honestly, I love second base. Second base is um, I've had to work my butt off just to get, you know, the comfortability of um, because I've heard so many knocks against me always. Like there's always something about my game. There's always something about my arm or my bat. So I always took pride in my defense to be sure handed. And uh, when I was in the minor leagues and when I won my gold glove um, in 2014, that was like I remember just being so happy that uh, my hard work was being, you know, shown. And um, but then again, I love center field. I love laying out and taking away extra base hits from people. So uh, they could go hand in hand. Um, but my top two probably be second base and center field. I can definitely see you enjoying making those plays in the outfield. It was a pleasure to watch you doing those for us. In terms of the Astros, much is made of the win at all costs outlook, which was kind of the modus operandi, particularly under Jeff Luno in recent years. And this sort of incredible attention to detail and the number crunching that's put in by the front office and the team behind the scenes. What's that like as a player when you're in that situation? And does that put additional pressure on you? I mean, honestly, it's now in the world of analytics, my type of player is it's sad because the my type of player is getting pushed out the door because you know i'm not gonna be off of the charts with my exit velocity i'm not going to be off the charts with my speed but i'm just a ball player and mm. i feel like that's what's always been in my back pocket is that hey at the end of the day i know how to play this game i feel like i have a high baseball iq um and it's tough because they number crunch so much and like they push out guys that I feel like they, you know, guys who deserve a chance, it takes them a longer amount of time to make it to the big leagues because they don't have the certain numbers on the sheet. You know, they might have the numbers statistically, but if they don't have like the high exit velocity or the sprint speed or the, you know, they throw 98 miles an hour from the outfield, it's like, what else can you do for me? And I knew that. And so I was like, okay, like going into the minor leagues, I just said, okay, you have to be better than you're, you have to be like one of the best people on the team always, like no matter what, because you're not going to 
you're not going to blow people off on the charts of like what you can do on a sheet of paper. So you just have to show them. So that's kind of how I felt. No, I can appreciate that. Did you find that personally a help or a hindrance? Was that was that a motivating factor or was it more of a you looking over your shoulder all the time? Yeah, I honestly, I, uh, you know, I have a really close relationship with my brother and, uh, you know, we talk about baseball a lot. He played up until he was in double A with the Brewers. And, um, you know, honestly, I just didn't want to concern myself with anything but baseball at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think that helped just because I was able to just limit the distractions and just show up to the field, play my game, not really worried about because at the end of the day, everybody's going to have an opinion about you. And um especially people who say negative things. I mean, we make the game look easy. Like this, like this game is not easy. So Mm. um, being able to just know that whoever talks bad about you can never do what you do. Right. So like, that's kind of how the mentality I had with, you know, the front office mates say whatever they want about you, but at the end of the day, they can't deny that you're a good baseball player. Right. So uh, that's very true. In terms of your time with the Astros, kind of links into that you spent a great deal of time moving between double a triple a the major league team back to triple a almost ad infinitum what is that like because i think that's that's an experience that a lot of fans may not necessarily think about as they follow a major league team particularly because this show that i do is is also designed for astros fans across the globe what is that experience like when you're moving between the minors and the majors and you don't really have that solidity of being able to say, right, I'm going to be set here for the next few months? Are you stepping up to bat thinking, could this be my last, my last at bat hey, Astros? I mean, before I answer this question, I mm. just want to say congrats on building such a big fan base with your, what you've oh, done. Appreciate that. All that. It's awesome. Um, Thank but you. yeah, it's for the fringe guys who are up and down mentally, it's draining. Like, you sometimes fans only see the physical of like okay he's playing baseball but they don't Mm. see like what is he even thinking or like what like someone's mother could have passed away but he is back on the field a couple days later trying to play his best and like um it's kind of relatable to guys who are up and down because after the game you know bench coach might find you hey uh skip needs to talk to you and you know you get sent back down and sometimes Sometimes it's more of a, if we go into an extra inning game and there needs to be an extra pitcher for the staff and you have options and uh, you're the odd man out. And so you can kind of, you can kind of do those numbers as you're sitting there, you know, there's not many dumb guys sitting in, in these big clubhouses. So, um, but for me, man, it was, it's tough. Um, And I just want fans to know that, you know, the journey is not as easy as it may seem. And we just sure. make it. We just make it look easy, and we go out there and we play. And uh, but when you get sent down, you have to think about. It. You have to pack up all your stuff. Like, what if you have a, a you have to you have a lease in an apartment, and then you go, get sent back down all your stuff. Sometimes your bats don't make it back, and then it's the mental of, wow, okay, you're back in the minor leagues. How are you going to get back to the big leagues? And for me, um, you know, I just read about. I like to read, and so. Uh, I always like to get 1% better each day. And um, I think that honestly helped my mental of just like be where your feet are and control the controllables. And it sounds so cliche, but, you know, when you're going through life like this and you're a big leaguer and then you're back in the minor leagues and you don't want to be that salty guy who comes back and kind of ruins like a team chemistry. So you kind of want to be an inclusive guy and 
honestly, like now that you've been there, you want to help the guys make it to the big leagues. And um, I've always just wanted to be a guy who just worked hard and try to get 1% better each day. And if I could do that and just worry about um, where my feet were at the time and stay in the moment and just say, hey, I'm I'm getting I get to play baseball for my job like that is the coolest thing ever so yeah it like it's all it's all perspective it's all how you look at things and that's how it is in terms of the actual process of when you're being told either you're coming up or you're coming down most of us would have seen Moneyball and seen the kind of film representation of it is it like that is that is that a realistic portrayal of it so sometimes you'll get out of the game skip a call you in if you've already kind of been up to the big leagues before and you're getting called back up he doesn't make a big deal out of it but if it's your first time, you know, we'll get the team together. It's all managers are different, but mm. um, I mean, pretty much after a game, after a game is done, skip a call you in. Hey, you're going back to the big leagues. You pack up all your stuff next day, next. And it depends on like where the team is. And if they need you in the lineup the next day, how fast they find that flight for you. And yeah, it's a bit of a whirlwind, not much sleep. And then it's like, all right, we need you to perform at the highest level. <laughs> so, that's, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? I, I can't imagine that having that thrill of being told that you're moving up and then you've got to be like game face instantly you can't you know you just can't pause for a second so yeah you don't want to you don't miss a beat so you just you just continue to just play your game and just um like i said know who you are no i think that's some great advice for any aspiring major leagues if i'm lucky enough to have them listening that's a very good outlook to have especially in terms of trying to be that one percent better i think that's a, a very positive way of looking at things when you were playing as an Astro at Minute Maid Park, for us Astros fans, that is that's beyond a dream come true. That's that's kind of like the pinnacle. Yeah. If you can put it into words, when you first played, I think it was was it May seventeenth, twenty sixteen. Your May Kaga, yeah. What was that like? Can you summarize the emotions that are actually running through you when you first step out on that ballpark in front of the fans, doing what you have always dreamed of, and you were there? What's it like? I mean, it's uh, it's so. It's hard to put into words, but it's almost like all the hard work that you've done ever since you were like seven years old. It's like that is paid off. If that can even like, if you can even wrap your head around that, um, just being able to walk on the field and just like walk around and mm. you know you see guys like Jimmy Rollins and guys that you played with on video games and now you are playing against them. It's like, yeah, it's a dream and. Uh, you know, you have that certain moment of where you have to pinch yourself and say, all right, you know, act professional, act accordingly, like, you know, let's do this. But at the same time, it's hard not to just stop and slow yourself down and just live in the moment and just um, realize it. And, you know, I remember looking up my big league number and it's like I was 18,700 something. And it's like, mm. you know, I think we're approaching 20,000 20, people in the big leagues and like, it's still not many. It's not many. Still if you think about that like, over a hundred years, how many like, years? Yeah. It's been around for a very long time, and you still you couldn't even halfway fill fill up Minute Maid Park with how many people play in the big leagues, and that's wild to me. Yeah, it's it's a bit mind blowing when you put it like that. What was your game day? Even still, what is what is your game day routine like? How do you prepare for a ball game? Uh, depends if it's a day or night game. I'm usually a big pregame nap guy. So I like cool. to get my nap in, but before I nap, I like to like visualize what I'm gonna do that day. Like, how long is the nap? Uh, max 45 minutes, but mm -hmm. it's more of like a visualize of what I want to get done in the day. Where is the pitcher's arm slot? Where do I want to hit this ball? How's my setup? Um, and it's all positive things. So I like to just have a like a positive mindset going into each game. 
And um, like last year, last year was a tough year for me because I learned, like I learned so much about myself because I had the highest line drive percentage of my career and the lowest batting average of my career. So like mentally, it just wore on me all year. Like I knew that I was hitting the ball well. I knew I was doing things right. But in this game, you can do everything right and still fail statistically. So my batting average was terrible. But at the end of the day, like I was hitting my line drives and I was just hitting it at people. And, you know, this league will learn how to put people in the right spots to where you hit the ball. And so uh, mentally for me, last year was draining. Um, Mm. But I learned how to just turn into a positive and just say hey at the end of the day you know this game is a game of failure and you have to learn how to deal with it and so I just kept kept moving on man just kept moving on I think that's again a good outlook I mean we learn generally in life we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes so I think it does ask a lot of sort of soul searching and trying to work out what's happening are you trying too hard or is it a case of just being unlucky but yeah I think that's absolutely right I think that the right outlook to take is to keep working and build from those setbacks and then turn them into positives Again, with the Astros, do you have maybe three favorite memories that stand out from your time? I, I'm guessing one, maybe the walk-off that you hit against um, yeah. the Indians. Two, two or three, three moments fav- which really stand out. Three favorite moments. Um, you know, man, honestly, I, I can give you moments. Um, looking back on it, I feel like I was always in the midst of like a comeback or like the seventh yeah. inning on. And I feel like I almost feel like that's what the fans remember most because, like, if I was, it was in any rally or any hit, like, I felt like I was – I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm just saying, like, mm. all those memories that, like, just come up of, like, late-inning heroics or just, be, like, working a walk so Carlos could hit a walk-off single or breaking a walk-off home run. Um, mm. First moment would have to be definitely my call-up just – uh, being on that field for the first time in uh, Chicago and having my family there. And the first pitch I saw was a double down left field line, like off Matt Latos. And um, that was that was one moment. Second moment had to be the walk-off for sure against the Indians. Mm. And I don't think that their bullpen, that was the first run all uh, series that their bullpen had let up. So I remember that being a huge hit. It was, um, yeah. My third moment is probably in 2018, just uh, going to the ALCS and playing against the Red Sox. And I mean, obviously, like the World Series and stuff, like I was on the alternative site, but mm. um, just being in a playoff environment uh, so young in my career, um, being able to tell other guys what it was like is huge. So it's funny, like I get looked at like I'm a veteran now. So I'm like, so yeah, it's a, it's a little different. Now I have rookies coming up asking me questions. It's uh it's funny. It's funny, but I enjoy it. You're still only 28. I think you've got a, a lot left in the tank. Yeah, like, I know. I know. They're like, hey, man, what was it like back then? <laughs> right, um, oh, gosh, yeah. Now I'm thinking about that series against the Red Sox. So you, you certainly didn't come up short through any fault yeah. of your own because you gave it everything in that series. But any funny stories that stick out from your time with the Astros? Like something unusual, maybe. I get the impression that the vibe amongst that clubhouse is one where there's a lot of fun. The guys have an absolute blast playing baseball. And I sort of, I can imagine there being all sorts of stuff, which we don't see, which would be sort of gold in terms of anecdotes or, or stories. Honestly, man, there's, I, it's tough to pinpoint one. Um, you know, my favorite memories are just traveling with the guys and um, Springer turned on the music as loud as he can in the locker room after a win and everybody just getting around dancing um you know in their sliders and in their pants and stuff so stuff like that if i i can't share too much you know what I oh mean? yeah you're not gonna imagine uh, yeah as a cohesive group 
I will say they were uh, great to be around, man. Who were your closest buddies in the group? Uh, Springer, McCullers, Correa. I got really close with Reddick, Bramley. Uh, me and Bregman are still tight. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, press. I mean, bro, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I, I pretty much got along with everyone. I feel like, but uh, probably those guys. Awesome. Last thing on the Astros. What message would you have for Astros fans who do very much wish you all the best in Oakland? Obviously, hopefully finishing runners up to the Astros this year. But what, what message would you have for them? Hey, I just want to say thanks for all the support over you know the last four years or so uh, being with the club, and um, I, I saw all the messages everyone sent me. And, um, you know, I'm glad I could have an impact on a little impact on, you know, you guys, y'all's life. And, um, you know, now being on the other side, uh, it's going to be it's going to be different uh, playing against the people with Houston across their chest. But um, I just want to say it's all love. And, um, you know, you guys will always have a special place in my heart for sure. Here, here, and it's very much mutual. We do miss you as an Astro for sure. Moving on to what's more current and more important than baseball, to, to put it bluntly, you have started this movement, the Plus One Effect, which, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, as we must call it a murder, because it very much was, I would like to discuss a few things in terms of, firstly, what the movement means, in case anyone doesn't know what it's all about because I can't assume that everyone is well-versed on it, and I guess that's part of what the whole thing is. Could you just briefly summarize what the Plus One Effect movement is and what you're doing? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously after the Floyd murder, I was kind of depressed and down in the dumps, and, you know, the Plus One Effect started with a Zoom call with my uncles and my nephews and my cousins, and we just, you know, my uncle said something about, you know, we just need to change, if we can change one person's perspective on, you know, what the world needs to be. And if we can change it, you know, it's kind of like a plus one effect. And uh, I kind of took that and I said, hey, I think we we have like something good here. And so I took it and started a campaign. And man, we've sold over a thousand shirts of just I opened up an open dialogue on social media of just, um, you know, hey, let's talk. So I probably talked to 150 to 200 people of just like, how can I help or what can I do? And uh, just giving advice and just educating people on what to see and how to educate themselves and to watch this documentary and to watch 13th mm. on Netflix to understand systemic racism and how black people have been oppressed in America. And the biggest thing I just told people is, you know, if you're not black, you can uh, the biggest thing you can do is just empathize with us because you'll never have this skin. But at least you can, you know, be able to know what we go through on a daily basis. And it was big. I mean, the campaign's been great. We've we've sold so many things. And, uh, you know, the money is going back to Gideon's Army right now, which, you know, helps with um, the inner city youth of Nashville. And so it's been good, man. I, I'm just I'm ecstatic. I, obviously, I think that the I did not know it was going to turn into how big it was. And uh, it's great. Absolutely. I think I would certainly applaud what you're doing. I think it's very brave that you've decided to stand up at this moment and do that. It's something which I hope that everyone will be able to latch on to. And I, I want to link, before coming back to that in a second, to the issue of race in baseball. Mm -hmm. A little while back now, there was that incredible Doug Glanville piece in The Athletic, which had discussion with several black former 
former major leaguers, Latroy Hawkins, Ryan Howard, Dontrell Willis, Tory Hunter, and Jimmy Rollins. It was enormously eye-opening, especially the revelations that major league clubhouses were not necessarily considered the safest or at least not the best environment to raise the issue of differential treatment experienced by black players in the game. To what extent would you agree with that, that the clubhouse is not necessarily the kind of sanctity which you might imagine it would be? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the sport, I mean, it's predominantly white. And so, you know, when you're the minority in a sport like that, sometimes it is tough to speak out. And especially when you have experiences, it's hard to tell your teammates who aren't of color because they don't experience it. And you don't want to bring that person's team, the team morale down, or you don't want to ruffle any feathers with anyone. So you kind of keep it to yourself. So, Mm. you know, after reading that piece, I kind of understood where he was coming from. So... Do you feel changes need to be made in clubhouses to try and actually actively bring the, the subject more and more to light? Yeah, I think after these recent events, honestly, you can feel a change in how people are reacting and wearing Black Lives Matter shirts and actually having these conversations. And if you've seen the athletics, everyone's been wearing the plus one effect and everyone's actually been talking about it and having open dialogue. And that's just like gives me chills talking about it, because like when I started this campaign, I never knew how big it was going to get. And to be able to Mm. have my teammates wear it, you know, on a daily basis, even knowing that they get photographed or filmed every day and it's seen every day. And so people are like, yeah. what's the one effect? And it's honestly just snowballed into this, um, you know, this huge positive effect. And I just love seeing people with their shirts on and um, mm. saying like, hey, I, you know, had a conversation with so-and-so. And it, it, that's what I love about it. Major League Baseball rightly celebrates Jackie Robinson breaking the color line every year. My worry, however, is that they maybe see this as the end of the process, when in reality, now being quite a while ago, that's actually the start of an extremely long road towards understanding equality and opportunity. Do you feel Major League Baseball is doing enough in 2020 to support black and Latino ball players? And if not, where are they failing? Yeah, and I think with Jackie Robinson, I'm glad that they celebrated. I think that, you know, there needs to be... I know that there's a day, but I, you know, almost feel like there need there can be a little bit more done. Um, but I do think that in 2020 they have done a great job with the Black Lives Matter, with the unity and all of mm. their publicity that they have done. Um, honestly, uh, it's been great, and especially with how they've responded to um, racism and how they have brought out many things in their commercials and where they post on Twitter and where they post on you know, the field of having Black Lives Matter on the mounds. And it's a big deal. And um, I'm glad people are opening their eyes and seeing that. Very much so. Do you feel that black players in Major League Baseball are potentially more reluctant to speak up on the subject or at least have been regarding racial prejudice, maybe with the lack of black managers and particularly senior front office level figures? I think there are no black GMs in the sport at the moment. How can this be changed? What needs to be done to turn the tide in that respect? Because it feels like this is a moment in history that we have to take advantage of as a community. Yeah, and I think, um, honestly, I think that guys, when they get done playing, you know, if you're black or Latino or whatever, I think that you need to, like, people need to go into these um, positions of office. And because it's good to include uh, people of color in these in, in these positions because now they can relate to a lot more you know different uh, groups and so you know I think it changes with you know honestly I think it starts from the top man I think you're gonna have to have you know a, a leader in an organization say hey we're gonna have this many black guys in this position we're gonna have this many Latinos in this position and mm-hmm. so I think it starts there 
And, you know, hopefully after I'm done playing like years down the road, hopefully I can, you know, get into that um, side of, of the of baseball and, uh, you know, really make a splash. So we'll see. I'll let you know. That sounds great. I mean, because there are so many talented, wildly talented black players. It just seems madness that they are not found in the coaching positions. And it just, just seems like it doesn't make any sense to me. And there's something not right there. Right. Just quickly before we finish, moving back to your plus one effect campaign, one of the main things that has been focused on so far from that is raising awareness of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, which I was completely unaware of before this year. And that's shocking. Uh, yes. Not only is it shocking, it's not acceptable. I was at school 20 years ago. I'm 35 now. And as much as I'd like to try and pretend I'm not, I'm 35. And uh, you look yeah, great. I appreciate that. But, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of when I was at school, certainly didn't study that. I can't speak for the curriculum now, but I would be pretty certain that it's not focused on particularly from what you were saying to Colin McHugh in his podcast 12.6 which was a great discussion on it I love the idea of what you said of having like three four lessons on it like projects on events in history like that and it needs to happen so I mean by changing one person at a time outside of the kind of establishment of teaching is one side of it I think and what you're doing in terms of getting it on the curriculums is another I mean where would you like to see this program attached to the plus one effect movement going forward and how do you visualize getting it there what needs to be done yeah, so I actually had a good conversation with the author of um, Hannibal Johnson. We had a, a Zoom call and we talked about it. And he's actually, I'm actually working with my high school to insert in their curriculum because I know you can't start teaching that until 11th grade. But I think, unfortunately, that event is white. It's it's washed away because I think it makes um, the white community look bad. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, people need to learn about that. And that's important part of our Absolutely. history and so when i sent out that tweet there's probably 90 percent of people who had never heard about it and uh i think wrapping it into the plus one effect is going to be huge um it's hard in the season right now to try to navigate everything and still keep my focus mm. on baseball but uh bits and pieces um I'm, I'm i'm clicking it together uh it might take some time but i think i'll have some more time in the off season to work on it but um being able to link these two things together are going to be important, especially for our future, just so uh, people can learn about it. I'm actually getting trying to get professors from Vanderbilt to do a, a lecture on it uh, to juniors and seniors in my high school. So that's a start. Um, I reached out to the Oklahoma senator, and they're actually putting in the curriculum in 2021. So um, I'm just trying to move state by state. And then I have uh, a couple of contacts uh, with Texas and the Texas senator. So we're moving in that, that direction, too. So if we can include it state by state, that's going to be a big deal. Firstly, that is fantastic. Secondly, I'd love to see it move beyond that internationally, because I think this is something which, as much as the discussion is rightly on racism in America, as a lifelong Londoner, I can tell you, even here, racism is very much still an issue. Unfortunately, part of the dialogue, which is still there, and it needs to be exposed both historically and in a contemporary context. And part of that is definitely the history and, and educating people. I think that education is the key point on this. I think that, that the more that we open our eyes, whether it's white people whether it's black people whether it's whoever i think that the key thing here is to making sure that we are having the same conversation with each other and that we're all united in terms of the direction in which we're moving 
I'd love to see what you're doing there get the same kind of traction over here in Britain and try and do the same thing because whilst yes we have Black History Month I sort of feel like it's great to have Black History Month but why is Black History separate from other history I mean I think it's it's history there's no reason to try and sort of compartmentalise these things and put them into a box so you can say well I've done that I ticked that box I think you're right you're right that's the kind of change which I want to see. I mean, I'm white. My wife is black. Our son is naturally biracial. And I want him to be able to learn about these things without feeling like it's being pigeonholed into some sort of different category. And right, I, right. I thoroughly applaud what you're doing. And I think, you know, it starts off with visibility, with things like the T-shirts that you're doing. And then it kind of branches out into the actual tangible stuff of having curriculums changed and eyes open and experiences broadened. I can't applaud what you're doing enough. I think it's fantastic. And I really hope you get everyone behind you with it's brilliant no it starts with you man it starts uh you know like i said thanks for having me on this and it's one of those things to where um you now know and unfortunately your kid will you know will have absolutely like you like he yep. so um there's going to be instances where he might experience racism and you're gonna have to help them and um i think that i hope it doesn't happen but um yeah, and you're just gonna have to have that, you know, real conversation with them that, hey, this is how, this is what, this is what this is, this is what this is, and um, that's when you start to see change, and it starts with your kids, and it starts with your close friends, and you know, I know that I can already genuinely feel you're a guy that is not scared to talk about change and to talk about how things need to be done. I can see that it's genuine. So, um, yeah, continue to do that. Continue to be who you are, and. Um, yeah keep it moving thanks i absolutely will do and yeah it's it's something which i personally feel very passionate about as well yeah in terms of that plus one effect one person at a time even if it takes hundreds of years the goal is to get there that's what it's about that's the goal i don't want to keep you too long i was just going to finally where can people get you on social media and also particularly with the plus one effect where do they need to go to check it out yeah so obviously it's on all my social media bios uh just click the, the plus one effect and uh, the link is copied there somewhere, but uh, that's where you could find it. You can find shirts for adults and youth, and there's masks there too, and shorts. And awesome. Um, you know, continue to just uh, have that open dialogue with people about race and uh, just educate people on, you know, how how to live the right way. Mm. So on Twitter, where can people get you at? At Tony Kemp. And how about uh, you've got Instagram as well? Yeah, at Tony Kemp six. Super. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me today. I can't appreciate it enough, and I wish you all the best for the rest of the season. No, man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one, dude. Well, what a thoughtful, engaging, and thoroughly enjoyable conversation that was with Tony Kemp. I have an enormous degree of respect for both the persistence embodied in his on-field career and the bravery of his new off-field endeavours. To get the chance to discuss the present pandemic pressurised season with the currently active major leaguer was an absolute privilege and one for which I am truly thankful. It was captivating to hear about Kemp's time as an Astro and what it is like to play under the focus of the microscope of such advanced Sabre metrics whilst moving between the major and minor league teams. I certainly also loved hearing about the incredible chemistry of being part of this Astros clubhouse and the characters within there. Hearing him talk about what it is like to be a black major leaguer and what Major League Baseball can do better to support its black players was very interesting indeed, and it is a discussion which must be had at all levels of the game. I have an immense amount of admiration for what Tony Kemp is doing with his plus one effect movement. I firmly agree with him that greater education is the key to unlocking a better and more accepting society in the face of racial prejudice everywhere. Please do check out his website, which I'll be sharing on Twitter, and pick up a plus one effect t-shirt to support what he's doing i know i will be for sure 
Next order of business before I go, it's time to do the draw to see who has won the Apollo B Someone Mask Design giveaway. Once again, I've written down the Twitter handles of everyone who entered and assigned each one of you with a number. Remember, this competition was open globally, so the winner could be from absolutely anywhere. Let's go to Google's random number generator with the number of total entrants set as a maximum. And here we go. And the winner is number 19, which is at Dirt Track Honey. Big congratulations to you. I will send you a DM and make sure you get that Apollo Be Someone mask sent on its way to you. I'm nearly done here, so please don't forget to make sure you follow me on Twitter at AstrosFansUK and on Instagram as UKAstrosFans. Hey, you can also even email me should you wish to do so, and that is AstrosFansUK at gmail.com. Please also make sure you're following Apollo Media over in Houston. Just in case you're not, that's at ApolloHOU on Twitter, all Houston, all original. And just like the prize in this episode, they have some terrific merch in their store, so please do get involved. Plus, if you use the code ASTROS-UK, you can get yourself a sweet little discount there too. That's it for today. The only thing remaining is for me to say a huge thank you, as ever, for listening to Strohs Across the Globe, Episode 3. Please subscribe, rate and review, and I look forward to having you all with me again for the next episode. Wherever you are, across the globe, let's go Strohs.